Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and the conversation's going to be hot even though the weather's cold. And when we come back in just a bit, looking for a last-minute Christmas present for the or holiday present for the man in your life, or the woman, but primarily a man, well, you're going to want to hear my next guest, Gary Grossman, author of a series of books, his newest, Executive Force. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Books are always a great present. Be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's Conversation, 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And to start the morning, good conversation with a, surprise, with a good Christmas gift for the man in your life. No matter what holiday you celebrate Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, have I got the gift for you. And it's written by my guest, Gary Grossman. Good morning, Gary Grossman. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing? I'm fine, and thank you for getting up so early this morning. Um, oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right. Tell me about the book. Well, uh, I write, I'm a TV documentarian by trade and an author more at night and I'm a, I'm a news junkie. I grew up in upstate New York, uh, listening to the shortwave radio when I was a kid with broadcasts from all over the world. So I'm, I've always been interested in what's out there on the edge of the news. Um, and I find myself writing about uh, what I call political reality thrillers. Um, Stories that uh, maybe if you start thinking the unthinkable, you come up with the unknowable and maybe the really possible and plausible. And over the over the past couple of years, as I've been writing these uh, thrillers, this the newest one is called Executive Force. Uh, I really deal with issues that, um, well, not necessarily realizing it initially we're dealing with in, across the country and in a geopolitical manner. The first book in the series, Executive Actions, dealt with sleeper cell spies coming into the United States. Well, we know they're here. They've been here for a long time. The second book uh, dealt with the power of hate radio, uh, and that also goes back to the 1930s. The third book in the series, that was Executive Command, dealt with the threat to our greatest and most vulnerable natural resource, water. Now comes along executive force, and I'm dealing with how American groups can be infiltrated and turned by a foreign power. And how do they do that? They do it through a separatist group. Um, separatists basically uh, bubbling up all across the country and not necessarily realizing that they've been um, – infiltrated and uh, taken over ultimately with the goal to disrupt America. And all of those really tend to be on the, the, the edge of reality. And in the case particularly of executive force, the whole plan is laid out by a foreign power, North Korea, to destabilize American politics using in the trope of uh, um, a, a, a political thriller, an assassin who's systematically targeting small towns, state, local, federal officials, councilmen and women, mayors, state representatives, a U.S. senator, and ultimately a Supreme Court justice. Again, as I was saying before, all to destabilize the government and make people pull out of politics, be fearful of running. What happens when Washington is stymied, the rest of the country is stymied. Well, there's room for this movement to kind of take over. Um, it's a fun read. It's not real, except all of it really is on the edge of what what could happen. And that's what's happened with all my other thrillers. It's, you know, you open a door and you look through and you can see tomorrow in a way that we never thought we could today. I mean, there's so much happening in Washington now that everyone asks, how can you, you know, how could you write that? Well, I can't keep up with what's happening in Washington, but I can maybe look a month or two, uh, a year later, two years later, and see what the possibilities are. Well, you talk about writing about the unthinkable, but the unthinkable is happening every day. It sure is. Um, I, it's like a Twilight Zone episode, Peter. It's so strange. I will write an outline for the book. 
And then I start sitting down and writing, and it seems as if the characters take over. Because the characters that I come up with, I have to do a lot of research on. I dig into, um, you know, what threats there are. I have uh, experts that I work with in Washington, with the U.S. Navy, uh, Secret Service, uh, federal government, uh, Supreme Court. And then I start digging into this stuff, and then the characters start taking over. And before I realize it, I'm writing things that two days later I may see something in the news the same way. It's really, really bizarre. It's like there's a knock at a door, character will come in and say, Gary, move over or take dictation. I'm in charge. Okay. Now you talk about this being a series of books. Are they standalone or do the characters jump from book to book? Great question. The, <laughs> the first three books were a trilogy, <laughs> and then that was it. And then I got reaction, enough reaction. The publisher, Diversion Books, said, let's do another in the series. So Executive Force is really outside of the series. All the major characters are established, and yet it really does work as a standalone, which is, which is kind of neat. And that's what I get from a lot of uh, readers because they'll read Executive Force and then go back to Executive Actions and uh, Executive Treason and then Executive Force. And I touch on a lot of things that I grew up in. I, I was, when I was 15 years old, I was one of the local DJs on a radio station in upstate New York. So for me to start writing about the power of radio and the power of talk radio and the power of hate radio, I was growing up on radio. And right after 9-11, uh, I was uh, listening to the radio and I heard that there was a threat that the water supply in my hometown was possibly poisoned. It wasn't. It was, it was a rumor. But that made me start thinking about putting water in, in the novel. And the sleeper cell spy, God, haven't we seen that really come true? And if anyone's followed the Americans... Uh, that TV show, it's what it's all about. The real difference, what's changed so much, is that in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, the Russians had, uh, the Soviets at that point, had spies coming to the United States who had been trained to become Americans, to look like Americans, to sound like Americans, to adapt their lives in a way that they would fit in. To, and they were trained how not to haggle over the cost of uh, tomato at a supermarket. You know, it's a price you pay for it. Well, back in Russia, back then, that's not what they were doing. Today, today, there are accents everywhere. The Russians coming in, Maria Butana, as an example, in last week's news, she'll be in this week's news. Uh, she's uh, facing jail time now as a Russian spy. She didn't have to hide her accent. She was able to infiltrate our political process in the open. And that also figures into executive force where it's not so much espionage anymore. There's sexpionage. Okay. Um, now, in my introduction, I talked about this making a great holiday gift for men. But it's not just for men, is it? No, it's not. There's a great, great woman character, and it, it, it doesn't just make a woman character to make the book uh, interesting for women. Um, but there is a great woman character, uh, Katie Kessler, who uh, is now working with the Supreme Court. She's discovered in the very first book, but she's now in this book as a, working with the Supreme Court and engage to the principal protagonist, uh, Scott um, Rourke, who is a, is a, a, a Secret Service officer who's assigned the task of investigating um, these murders of um, political figures around the country. Katie Kessler, at the same time, is tasked by the Supreme Court to look into the separatist groups, and together they're the ones who really pull the story together. Interesting thing, um, I talk to a lot of uh, thriller writers, uh, uh, people like uh, Lee Child, uh, David Baldacci, others, and, you know, often they'll have great women characters if it's a, if it's a series, uh, Lee Child less so, but others have uh, great women characters. Uh, I love the character of Katie Kessler. After Executive Actions came out, 
uh, I got a a letter from a reader who said, I know what you authors do. I know. You have these really interesting women characters in your books. And then in the second book or the third book, you kill them off. Please, please don't kill Katie. And it was just such a great, great, great request. I said, uh, I, I won't kill her. And he said, no, I don't believe you. And he said, uh, put her in a coma if you need to or have her travel around the world, but don't kill Katie Kessler. Well, she's so important to executive force. She's the real brains behind cracking the code uh, and what goes into the plot. And uh, so Katie, Katie is around. But it's also it, – you know, there's so much uh, um, political reality in it where so many of the figures in uh, executive force are strong women and are interesting figures. It's it's a thriller, but it's not a techno thriller. So I think it appeals to everybody. Hope so. Hope so. Okay. Um, where do you go after this? Well, uh, I'm writing another series uh, right now called uh, the first book. It comes out in March. It's called Red Hotel. Um, and actually, that book is finished. Uh, that'll be a hardcover release in March. And I'm working on the sequel for that right now. And that's, kind of, that's an interesting story to tell because uh, it started because I was walking our dogs one night. I live in Los Angeles, walking our dogs one night. And I bumped into a friend who said, I have a guy you have to meet. Um, he's the former president of Marriott International, and he's interested in having someone co-write a book with him. So I said, well, gee, that's interesting, Bruce, but um, what do I have in common with the former president of Marriott International? And he said, well, number one, you know me and why I'm recommending it. Number two, just meet him. Well, the answer to the number one is my friend Bruce wrote three of the Pierce Brosnan, James Bond movies. So I know he knows a good story and a good storyteller. Number two, I met with him, and it took about 30 seconds for me to realize that the former president of Marriott International was as much in the anti-terrorism business as the hotel business. Uh, the hotels, his hotels were blown up in, uh, in Jakarta and Mumbai. He was uh, getting his staff out of Cairo at the fall of Mubarak. He was in Tripoli when uh, Gaddafi went down. So, and I learned that in about 30 seconds. So my first question to him was, who do you have on speed dial? And he told me. And I realized that for an international job like that, your relationships have got to be in the intelligence community. And the more and the more we talked and the more I learned, and I'm still learning more and more, it's an interesting life which uh, weaves in and out of a world that I have only written about but never really lived in. And uh, Red Hotel uh, pulls together his experiences, but in a fictional setting where a Putin-esque character uh, really wants to do what a real Putin wants to do, and that is rebuild NATO, uh, rebuild NATO, destroy NATO, and rebuild the Eastern Bloc uh, nations. So that is the next book up, uh, separate in a series from Executive Force or the Executive Series, but uh, with a whole new group of characters, and uh, that'll be out in March. So lots happening. What does the intelligence community they think about what you write? They, I mean. It seems they're either laughing because they think you got it wrong or they're a little nervous because you got it right. I love that question. Um, I hope um, uh, well, uh, the ones that I hear from and the people that I work uh, with on the inside uh, are really um, uh, very helpful and want the book to be as accurate as possible or the books. They don't want me to write and I think it's the same for any thriller writers who are in this field. They don't want, they don't want anyone to write a handbook for a terrorist, but they do want it to be accurate. And I, I work with, uh, well, in fact, in an executive force, uh, I work with the United States Navy again, which I often work with. And I came upon a uh, plot device that is in the um, conclusion of the book, but it's a thread all the way through. And the Navy, when I reached out to the Navy, the Navy Public Affairs Commander, who was then going to put me in touch with the, uh, the submarine command, 
the Navy commander said, um, you know, you've really touched on something that's pretty sensitive. Um, we can help you with the accuracy of the language, and we can help you in terms of how it will work into a plot, but we can't really comment on the technology or the science that you've come up with. So I realized, okay, when you start thinking in the unthinkable again, you can come up with what's out there or what's being developed. So there's an example of, you know, reaching out and, and talking with uh, experts, in this case the U.S. Navy, but it's the same way working with munitions experts, uh, uh, people in Army intelligence and uh, military intelligence, you know, of, of all uh, uh, divisions, but also the Secret Service. You have to be accurate in what you're describing. Um, and as long as you're accurate in what you're describing to the best of our ability, then they'll forgive some things that if you're not working on the inside, you just wouldn't know. But my dad was in law enforcement in New York State, and my mom was in politics. So, uh, and again, we were all news junkies, and I was, you know, watching and listening to the news, doing the news on the radio. Um, so... Getting things as uh, getting things right is important. Getting things as accurate as possible for the sake of fiction is very, very important. And uh, you know, to that end, it's it's what I think about as I'm going to sleep. It's what I think about when I when I write, um, and even you know the documentaries that I've done for television for the History Channel over the years involve a lot of this too. The, there was a 1933 plot to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt, um, and that kind of weaves its way into my writing and uh, secrets of the White House and civil defense in America and the times that the U.S. has been attacked. Um, Unknown things that um, I love researching, but in order to research them accurately, you have to talk to experts. Mm. Any good thriller, it seems to me, though, or at least if it's going to sell, requires a good car chase, some blood, and some, <laughs> and some bed hopping. Uh, I, I've I've had my share of that in the in the books, and you've described some of Executive Force. There is a terrific car chase uh, in Executive Force, and for that, I had to rely on an expert, a man named uh, Peter Loge, who's on Capitol Hill in Washington now, also teaches, but has worked inside the government and uh, worked on uh, as a uh, lobbyist as well. But I had to plot out a uh, chase in Washington, and he did it basically block by block for me. Uh, in another book, I needed an ATM to be able to uh, record a conversation, to record visually record a conversation, to be able to see a conversation that was happening across the street. And I had I asked him to find the exact location where that would that could where that would work. So uh, in, in the case of executive force, yes, a really good car chase. Yeah, there are there's some there's there's action and there's some violence, um, and that's also what makes a, a good thriller. Uh, and for the sake of a um, uh, martial arts fight, uh, I had my son, uh, who's a martial art was a mar he, he doesn't do it anymore, but he was a martial arts uh, student for many many years, and he's a, a, a young screenwriter now and a director, and I had him actually choreograph the fight scene for me, so I didn't have to go too far outside the house to get an expert on, on how to actually uh, choreograph for print uh, a good fight between uh, the assassin and Scott Rourke. Uh, but all of this, I guess maybe the way to put it in perspective, Peter, is all of this comes down to when I started writing thrillers. It, it, it's kind of an interesting story, and I remember the date exactly. Uh, I had a production company in Los Angeles, and my business partner and I were in New York, and we were meeting with the History Channel, which we did a lot of work for. And I remember the date, and I remember what was said in the meeting, because somebody said, not me, somebody had said in the meeting, do you think we're running out of history? And I said, 
No, 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 no. I mean, why is he here at the History Channel, for goodness sakes? You know, we're not running out of history. I remember the date specifically because that was September 10th, mm. 2001. Well, two days later, Rob Weller, my business partner, and I ended up getting a car out of Westchester County Airport and driving back to Los Angeles. We were one of, you know, very few people who could get a car out. We drove back to LA and I started thinking about ooh, a lot, obviously, uh, the impact, the impact on me. I remember when my dad uh, was in New York City when the Cuban Missile Crisis was beginning and my mom and I sitting back in Hudson, New York, wondering if if we'd ever see him again, what was going to happen. And those thoughts rushed back as we drove. And I began thinking about writing my first novel, writing my first thriller. And if the attack on the World Trade Center took seven, eight years to incubate, what about a plot that might uh, take 30 years to incubate a very long tail on, on a, on a plot because, you know, we don't have a lot of patience in this country, uh, for, you know, the music record will become a hit. If it doesn't quickly, it's gone. A movie, if it's not a hit over the first weekend, it's gone. <clears throat> but to the rest of the world, there's a lot of patience uh, in the Muslim world, in in Asia, in Russia, and plots can take a long time, a, a long period of time for planning. And um, and when I started thinking, you know, have we run out of history? No, we haven't run out of history, but we better read a lot of history to understand what's going to happen tomorrow. What do you like to read? What uh, what kinds of things I mean, you know, appeal I'm, to you? I, I like Baldacci. Um, I'm going to start reading you, I promise. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. I like murder mysteries. Yeah, me too. And there's, a, there's, there's enough murder mystery that has to be figured out in this, but it's not a traditional uh, potboiler murder mystery in that regard. But uh, it's a globetrotting mystery with, uh, with murder. Uh, but they're great page turners. Um, these books, but, you know, so many books in, in this realm – and um, it's, you know, with so much unbelievable politics going on, um, you wonder, well, why would you ever write or let alone read political thrillers? You know, I get enough politics during the day with, you know, the news. Uh, well, it's still also exciting to get inside characters and to explore their world and, and how they reason and how they figure things out. And what I learned from my dad um, early on, and I'm a, I, you know, I mentioned James Bond before, I'm a big James Bond fan, but it really doesn't come down to one guy or one woman going out there and saving the world. It really takes somebody who knows a nugget of information, uh, maybe in the Secret Service or the FBI, who's willing to work with another person and ask questions and get part of the other story and work with another person and get it. And it's, it, it is a village that solves problems, uh, not just you know a James Bond kind of figure. They're great stories and they're great movies, but I tend to write more from what the experience that I got from my folks, my mom would be working in Albany, the, the, the capital, uh, under Rockefeller in those days. And my dad worked in, in the civil service and law enforcement. And uh, I would see how even they talked things through that kind of led to a greater understanding of the, of the whole process. And uh, go ahead. No, go, please. And I'd like to say thank you to my guests this morning. My guest, um, Gary Grossman, his new book, Executive Force, It's the Stuff Nightmares Are Made Of. Thank you, Gary. Oh, thank you, too, Peter. Take care, and great holiday season to you and everybody listening. Thank you. And you've been Thanks. listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's Conversation here on 94 WIP, and a chilly day it's going to be, but hot conversation always here on 94 WIP. And from a stuff nightmares are made of to something a little bit more relevant, I think, or maybe I don't know relevance the white word, um, something more of interest this holiday season. I'm here to welcome Gina LaRoche. Gina is one of the authors of the new book, 
the seven laws of enough. Good morning, Gina. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. In our society, some people have nothing, really. They're sleeping in refrigerator boxes and living out of the mission kitchen. And other people have far, what I think is far too much. Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And um, just want more, more, more. But you write about something in between. You write about um, having enough, seven laws of enough. Why? Um, because regardless of where you are on the spectrum, we, we believe that we are living in this story of scarcity that um, uh, has us trapped. And, and I want to be clear that those who are living on the street, that there really is a, um, there is structural scarcity that, um, they're living under, like they, they do not have a house, they may not have enough to eat, but it is not because there are not enough homes or not enough food. We've set up our society to restrict that um, and, um, and have these haves and have-nots. But there's also um, interpersonal scarcity. I'm, I'm not enough, you're not enough. Um, I, I, I'm not enjoying this relationship, et cetera. But then there's this mindset of scarcity, which we mostly speak about in the book, where even though I have multi-millions of dollars, even billionaire, I am waking up in the middle of the night with nightmares and, and, and sweat about not having enough. So that's why we wrote the book. Where do, you th- Go ahead. where do you think that comes from, though, that nightmare? Well, I think it comes from a lot of places. One is how our society is, is set up, how we're shaped, um, myths about, um, you know, myths about what it means to be an American, myths about um, what we call the myths of scarcity. Um, the first myth is there's not enough. Um, the second myth is more is better. And as, as long as we believe there's not enough and more is better, then we're stuck in scarcity. The third myth is that's just the way it is, um, and we can't fix it. So as I said, even though 30,000 children will die today from hunger, it's not because there's not enough food, but we believe that there's not enough. Um, there's also what we call these three myths of excess. Uh, which is the flip side of the coin, which also um, pervades our lives. And that first myth is you can have it all. The second myth is having it all will make you happy. And the third myth, um, Peter, is if you do not have it all or you are not happy, then it is your fault. Mm. So, so I think that some of those myths shape us and then, uh, then the stories we're born into shape us, and I think that's where the nightmares come from. It's interesting to me, though, um, that a lot of people feel they're not enough. Yeah. They're, they're not enough because their marriage isn't what they hoped it would be. Their marriage is not enough. Their life is not enough because they don't have the body of a male exotic dancer or a female exotic dancer, centerfold type. They're not enough because they don't have a Rolls Royce in the driveway. Yeah, you know, or some people can say they're not enough because they can't sit meditation uh, like a Buddhist monk or, like, it, it spans everywhere. They're not enough because they only have one kid and not three kids or, you know, I only I can't afford a closet of $400 high heel shoes. But that not enough, uh, my hope is that the book, ha- through the seven laws, gives you this journey from, uh, the scarcity story to this story of what is enough or the story of sustainable abundance. So that is our hope, and we're using the seven laws of enough to get you there. And so law number two is really this declaration that I am enough. And if you, through this powerful declaration, it can be a gateway for you to start your journey toward really essentially knowing that you do enough, you have enough, and you actually are enough. 
How do you begin that journey, though? Because some people can't find the door. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully they pick up this book, listen to this radio interview. Um, <clears throat> I, I personally uh, start the, started the journey with this <clears throat> conversation of seeing where <clears throat> scarcity, where I was actually in scarcity. In the book, we talk about there's weapons of scarcity, uh, like impatience and resistance and distraction and jealousy. So one of the things, one way to begin the journey is just actually notice that you are in scarcity. Um, even on our website, we have a scarcity assessment you can take. I personally like to name the scarcity, and then it, to me that's where we, that awareness has, me, has us start the path towards <clears throat> a, a, a new life of our creation and our design. Is that belief in scarcity something that develops over years, or is it something you sort of inherit from your parents? I think, it, well, I think we inherit it from a number of places, so it's not just our parents. I mean, some of it's an ancestral story passed down to us. Um, we can inherit it from our religion. We can inherit it from um, our uh, neighborhoods or how where we live on the planet. I'm sure in in uh, the Philadelphia area, you've got the, you know, right side of the tracks and the wrong side of the tracks, and everybody knows about it, but yet, uh, no, you know, we don't realize that that's part of the scarcity story. Uh, and then we see it over time. It really, the law number one is the, that stories matter, and we are shaped by these stories. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Gina LaRoche. Um, she's co-founder of the Seven Stories, Seven Stories Leadership Group. Seven Stones Leadership Group. Yeah. All right. Sorry about that. And <laughs> one of the authors of the new book, The Seven Laws of Enough. My name's Peter Solomon. What are the seven stones? Are they the laws? No, <laughs> the seven stones are our uh, uh, values of how we live and, and create the company, and the seven laws really came up out of our work uh, with clients and in our transformational workshop. So I'll just quickly say the seven laws so we have them. Law number one I've already said is stories matter. We're shaped by our stories. Um, they shape where we, who we are now, where we came from, and where we're going. Law number two, I've already said, is I am enough. Um, law number three is I belong, and we say you belong regardless of the stories you tell yourself. Law number four is no one is exempt. Um, and essentially, we cannot insulate ourselves from life's ups and downs, and there is freedom when we stop trying. Law number five is resting is required. Resting deeply in ourselves allows us to remember the truth of the rest of the laws. Law number six is joy is available. And this law reminds us to really lighten up and not take things so seriously and to laugh, play, and have fun. And finally, law number seven, and sometimes, Peter, I say this is really the only law, and that is that love is the answer. So those are the seven laws of enough. How'd you get so smart? Because I'm, I'm sure you weren't born this way. Or, or were you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, the school of hard, the school of life and hard knocks. I mean, we all go through a journey. Um, I think partially my story, a lot of my story is shaped about being black in America and that had me live a particular life that um, really has shaped me and it brought me uh, had me interested in uh, things that I could see from a different perspective of being an outsider or feeling like an outsider. Um, and then a lot, of, a lot of education and great friends and great family. Did your skin color, though, your ethnicity, get in the way of feeling like you had enough originally? I would say... Um, 
for me, uh, it occurs inside of this law number three around I belong and the story of belonging and this break in the relation in relationship of, of not belonging. So having the sense of I uh, don't belong anywhere because I, again, back to the landscape I just spoke about, I neither, I live, I do not live in a black community and so living in a white community, I didn't belong there, but I also didn't belong in the black community because I didn't live there. And you don't, if you don't live someplace, you don't feel like you belong there. So I, I would say that inside of the relational domain, there was this break in, in belonging that I've cultivated, um, the sense of belonging as I've uh, grown and matured. Hmm. What got you to the place, though, to begin to think these, these thoughts of getting enough um you know a lot of practice we talk in the book every chapter has um a set of practices and experiments that uh go with into the laws and most of those practices really uh i created uh for my own journey and you know we start uh practice with awareness um, and so just awareness of how much my own stories were shaping and, and giving me my experience of life, that really didn't feel like it was working for me. I do not feel a sense of satisfaction. I didn't feel a sense of joy or play or ease. And then usually we must unwind um, from what has happened to us, our, our interpretation of what, who we are, our habits, our, our conversations. And then we go through a, a place of capacity building where we repeatedly repeat an action to strengthen um, what was missing. And that's the process that I've gone through. And, and that's why I'm, I love this book. It's because it's, I'm not telling you to do it my way. I'm telling you to find your way through. And here's a larger framework for you to experiment with so you find your own definition of enough and your own truth. So you're, you might not have that experience of a break in belonging, but you might have this experience of growing up in a really strict religious um, environment that shaped you and you broke free of that and you, and you don't have a story for the future because your story of the past feels fractured. Uh, or you might have this experience of um, having a chronic illness or having uh, a death um, in the family at a young age. So, you know, addiction, uh, poverty. So we all come through this life with our own story. And so my hope is this book is really like a guidebook, almost a journal um, for your own personal journey. But how you begin on that journey, okay, you can realize that you've had these issues in your life mm -hmm. and you want to change them. Mm-hmm. But how do you begin? Because that programming, those messages for, for such an early age and for so long can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. Uh, you know, there's so many places to start. One is finding a one person or a group of people who are willing to start with you. Even how I started this journey myself, there's a group of people we saw we were in scarcity. We had no idea what it meant or how to get out of it. And all we did was get on the phone every Saturday morning and say, we're in scarcity. What did you notice? What did you notice? We didn't know the way. Another place you could start, believe it or not, is with just the practice of generosity. Um, I find that if, if I'm wallowing in something, if I go out and help someone else or speak to someone else, get out of my own, you know, cocoon, and look to see other people are suffering, other people are living a life. I'm not so alone. I'm not so different. And actually, why don't I be generous and help them in some way with my time, talent, or treasure? Uh, 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 the uh, uh, akin to that is you could also just start with gratitude. Okay, I'm suffering. I don't know how to how to begin this journey. I don't know how to take that first step on the yellow brick road, so to speak. Um, but what am I grateful for? Well, I notice that I'm breathing clean air or fresh air. I notice that I have water available for me to drink. 
I noticed that, um, I don't know, I, I actually have clothes to wear or maybe I have a job <clears throat> or maybe I have a room and a house. Um, so those are a couple of places to start. Uh, but I'm a big fan of, of, of reaching out and having friends and support. How do you want people to use the book? Well, I would say you can use it a variety of ways. Um, as I said, I, it's like a journal. Even the cover is like the suede cover, and it's beautiful just to hold and touch and rub your hand on it. Every chapter has an opening inquiry question to reflect on. And even if you – that's another option. If, you, if it's overwhelming even to start with a book, open to any of the ch chapter cover, chapter headings, and each has a its own inquiry question. You could just start with reading that inquiry question out loud. Every chapter also, as I said, has exercises and practices. You don't have to do all of them. You could pick one and just try them. One of, one of the exercises a client of ours gave us was every time he had a scarcity thought, he would put a coin in a jar on his desk. And at the end of the month, um, and if he was big scarcity, he put in more money. If it was little scarcity, he put in less money. And at the end of the month, he gave that jar, he gave the money in that jar to an organization that was doing work that he, uh, that spoke to him. So, um, and you can obviously just pick up the book and read it cover to cover. But I, I'm a person who likes to uh, dive into a book where I'm most called to, and this book works. You can start with law number six if you'd like to. Um, so that's how I would tell people to use the book. Is there anybody else besides you guys who are doing this work? Yes, I would say a lot of people are doing this work. Um, they just don't use the exact same terminology, but the, um, the myths of scarcity actually come from Lynn Twist. She wrote this book, The Soul of Money, and she runs the Soul of Money Institute, and she's also uh, runs this organization, Pachamama Alliance. Um, we, uh, and we've seen uh, Vicki Robbins talks about, she wrote this book, Your Money or Your Life. Um, even uh, people who talk about um, the minimalist, we're not necessarily minimalist, and we're not necessarily talking about money. We are talking about it at a meta level where we are, we're giving you the framework, and if your thing is, minimalism or money or relationships or time if you have the scarcity of time and you really don't know where uh, how to go you can start with our conversation so you can go out and do the things in the world that most call to you one of my clients wants to get rid of the single-use plastic bag she uses our work to inspire her to go out and do that work out in the world we're into the holiday season now, mm -hmm, uh, Gina, mm -hmm. where a lot of people feel they need more. I got to go out and buy the best present. I got to go out and get the best present from somebody else, especially little kids. But adults who have never grown up either feel that way. What do you say to them? Well, this is tricky. So I would say really pause and see if this actually is working for you. And there's a couple of places to look. If you're going into debt and using credit cards that you are not going to be able to pay off, um, you're probably. I would encourage you to really rethink what you're doing because you're actually you're actually in more than enough. You're not in enough. You're in more than enough because you can't afford it. Um, I also have people look at obligation. If you are doing anything out of obligation, particularly over the holidays, I really request that you don't and do things from this place of joy. Um, and then my husband and I have this commitment to each other um, is that we actually don't buy each other birthday presents, Christmas presents, Valentine's Day gifts. If we are out in the world over the course of the years and we see something that calls to us, we buy it but we don't go out and buy something just to have it on a particular day. Um, and I'm not saying you all have to do that, but that's what my husband and I do. And then finally, um, there's always, you can always 
say, hey, I want to honor this holiday with a charitable donation. But I love when people say, I made a charity donation in your name. I actually call people and say, what charity speaks to you? So I can honor them with making, of taking my resources to support something that they care about. So, so I, and if you love this holiday and you like to have something small in the stocking, I'm not against it, but just notice where what's driving that desire. I think it was Mae West, though, who said too much of a good thing can be wonderful. What do you think about that? Yeah, I... I, I don't know. That, that's just not my experience. So I, I go... I, I travel. I'll, I travel a lot. Um, and I'm constantly on the airplanes. And when it for work and so when it comes time for vacation and my family's like oh let's fly to such and such place i just think i have to get on another airplane so i i that just hasn't been my experience i get that maybe she felt that way but that just you know i noticed that i go out to really fancy dinners a lot and so they lost that luster for me so maybe i'm alone but there's something that has diminished for me that it, there's no longer this, like, oh, like the first time I rode in first class in the airplane, I said, oh, I'm in first class. And then, you know, then it's like, oh, of course I'm in first class. You know, I, I, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm unique, but that's my experience of life. In fact, as we're talking, um, Gina LaRoche, it occurs to me that too much of a good thing can in fact be a burden, whether it's too many clothes, too many possessions, too much to do. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I we do have people who are quite wealthy, who we know, who are burdened by their money. I, I actually have said it seems to me that the people who have more money, the trust funds, uh, are more concerned about money than the people who don't have money. And most of my people, friends who don't have money, say, well, I'd love to have that burden. But it's it really is a burden, and when you have the shoes and the clothes, and you need a bigger closet, and you need a bigger house, and you need a bit bigger impact, you take a, have a bigger impact on the environment. So I think it can be a burden if you are coming from it from this place of more is better, and not pausing to truly enjoy what life has to offer. Um, I, I, I'm an artist. I love paint and drawing materials. And I, I have probably a little more than enough, but, but when I go and get a, a, a mark-making tool, I use it and enjoy it and spend my time with it. So um, I would just, again, it's, you gotta, it, it's not absolute. Some people might have 50 pairs of shoes and truly enjoy them and use them. And other people, it can become a burden. And I'd like to say thank you to Gina LaRoche. Her new book, The Seven Laws of Enough, Cultivating a Life of Sustainable Abundance. Thank you, Gina. Thank you, Peter. Have a great holiday season. You too. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's a chilly WIP Sunday out there. I'm told it's going to go no higher than 43. So make sure you put on a good sweater and or a winter coat, and go out and about to finish your holiday shopping. Don't let it make you crazy, and don't let the credit card get into meltdown. No matter where you go, take 94WIP with you. My name's Peter Solomon, WIP time, 6.55. It's Peter Solomon, WIP Sunday here on 94WIP, and we go from Eve Arden to another good read, a good holiday present. And I'm pleased to welcome here all the way from Sweden, Martin Osterdahl, his new book, Ask No Mercy. Good morning, Martin. Good morning or good afternoon for me, but okay. good morning to you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Ask, no Thank mercy. you. Ask No Mercy, what is it about? Ask No Mercy, um, it's about a woman who's kidnapped in St. Petersburg in Russia in 1996 and a Swedish man who goes over to Russia to try and find her. And uh, while searching for her, he discovers 
uh, a lot of threads going back in history, back to his own sort of family, mysterious background, uh, which dates back to the end of the Second World War when uh, Russian, Russian bomb planes actually dropped bombs over the Swedish capital. Where'd you get the idea from the book? Well, um, I mean, I got the idea from, from studying Russian and studying Eastern European history and spending time in Russia um, quite a lot during, you know, uh, the early years of the 90s because uh, obviously when, you know, the, so, the, the fall of the Soviet Union was a, was a huge, huge thing for us. Uh, the biggest thing I think that's happened in my lifetime, uh, at, at least up until 9-11, uh, in terms of, you know, changing and shaking the world. And uh, 96 was a, was a very very special time. It was the, the watershed election when, when the first presidential election in Russia after the Soviet Union and Boris Yeltsin was going to be re-elected or not. That was the big question. Was, was Russia going to carry on towards openness and democracy or, or were they going to fall back into uh, something else? So it was a very exciting time to be in Russia uh, and a very exciting setting for a, for a suspense novel. Now, setting the book in Russia raises a lot of interest for a lot of people in that Russia still in this world of 24-hour media is a mysterious yeah. place to us. Should we be worried about it Russia? Should well, I, I, you know, uh, everything that's going on, I think it's all, it's all a question of perspective, really. I think, uh, I think in America and in Sweden, we, we in, a, in many ways, we have the same perspective on things. We, we both believe in a kind of Western dem- democratic idea, but but we're obviously very much closer to Russia uh, than you are. I mean, from where I'm sitting now, it's just a one-hour flight to St. Petersburg. Um, and uh, throughout history, Russia has always been the arch enemy for Sweden, and that goes back hundreds of years uh, in history, long before the days of communism. And we've always, you know, we've always been told to kind of sleep with one eye open to the east uh, because uh, we need to keep a lookout to that giant country on the other side of, of, uh, of the Baltic Sea. But uh, if you ask me, should we should we be worried now? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. There's definitely a Russian agenda on the world stage, um, and Russia Russia believes itself to be one of the, the the big cultures of the world. You know, the Russian culture is a very big, rich culture, um, and Putin has famously said that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the biggest geopolitical disaster of of, of his time, and his job is to reinstate Russia's, uh, you know position in the world as, uh, as, as a superpower. And does any of that enter into Ask No Mercy? It does, very much so. Um, I mean, the, the, uh, the election in 96 when, when Yeltsin, I don't know if, if everyone remembers Yeltsin, but, you know, he was, he was kind of weak health uh, and he was, he was an alcoholic. Uh, and uh, the Western forces like the IMF and the World Bank uh, struck deals with Russia and with, and with the oligarchs to keep him in power because the alternative was, was the Communist Party to go back to, to communism. But, but somewhere in, in striking that deal, we also paved the way for Putin. Uh, and, and Putin is, one, is actually a character in the book because in, in 96, when, when Ask the Mercy takes place, he was the second-hand man to the, uh, to the mayor of St. Petersburg. So uh, he kind of lingers in, in, in the shadows of this book. Lingers sinisterly. <laughs> Sorry, does he linger in a sinister way? Well, uh, he's yeah. I mean, he's he's somehow. I mean, he, uh, there's a lot of talk about the different 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 uh, power centers of Russia, and I think one definite power center is, of course, the military and and the generals. And and in order to to to, to keep Yeltsin in power and, and democracy to keep the the, the road to democracy open. Uh, you know, we, we had to do deals with, with the generals. And it's, it's the generals and a sort of a conspiracy of generals, military leaders, that are the, the evil conspiracy of this book. And they have a tie to, to, to Putin. Where do you get the idea for the book, though? Because it's a very detailed book in terms of the conspiracy. Yeah, um, well, uh, what's fascinated me with this from from the very beginning and the reason why I've studied so much Russian history uh, and Eastern European history is that, you know, growing up in Europe, uh, as I did, uh, I was fortunate enough to to, to travel inside and behind the Iron Curtain uh, as as a young young man. And and I realized it was so different. You know, the West and the East was so different, and it fascinated me. 
but as Europe progresses, Germany has always, you know, worked very hard with its conscience, uh, with, with its guilt for, for the atrocities that happened during the Second World War. And, and it still very much dictates Russian, I mean, sorry, German politics today. Now we, we know that there was so many, I mean, Stalin had uh, millions of people's lives on his conscience, but whereas Germany's really worked with this, uh, Russia has never denounced this period of its history. They've never denounced the Stalin regime. In fact, if you listen to Putin, they, he speaks of, of, of that era with, with nostalgia. And even today, when there are polls of, of you know, who, who was Russia's greatest leader of all time, Stalin still scores pretty high in those polls. So that's something that's really interesting about that. And we've had, you know, we've had German war criminals standing in trials in, in The Hague and so on, but we've never seen any Bolsheviks, we've never seen any communists actually on trial for, for the crimes against humanity that they've committed. Uh, and there's something about that that's very interesting. Um, and when I, when I can't, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Because um, this tradition, if you will, of eliminating your enemies yeah. from the top didn't start with Stalin even. Doesn't it go back to all the way to the Romanovs? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's true. I mean, if you look at Russian history, it's very the, the evolution of history is very different in Eastern Europe and Russia compared to to, to Western Europe. And I think if you, it goes back all the way to to the division of the Christian Church, in fact, uh, whereas the auto, orthodoxy was 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 the was the faith that that sort of conquered the East. And if it hadn't been for the orthodoxy, I don't think communism would have taken root the way it did in Eastern Europe, whereas it didn't in Western Europe. And, and you know, there are different phases of, of our historic evolution in the West that have that have sort of safeguarded us from 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 communism in a way. Uh, whereas you don't have that tradition in, in in Russia. You don't have the tradition of private ownership in Russia. You've never had it. It's something completely new. You've never had private ownership of land in Russia. That's something completely new. So, so creating democracy from the top takes a very, very long time. Okay. If you could give us a brief sense of the plot of Ask No Mercy, please. Give, sorry, give me a brief sense of the plot. Oh, the plot. Well, well the plot is, 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 is basically, it's, it's a multi, multi-layered plot. But, it, but the plot in the present is that, that Max Anger, who is the, the protagonist of the book, he's he is engaged with a Russian girl, and they also work together. But he, but she, she's working in St. Petersburg, uh, trying to study the developments of the presidential election. And suddenly, she goes missing. So he flies over there to try and find her. But he, you know, he cannot trust the police. Obviously, he cannot trust anyone. So he has to go it alone. And while he searches for her, uh, things from his own family background comes up to surface, and it has something to do with the, with with a, with a crime that happened at the second end of the Second World War in Stockholm. So it's, 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 it's a hidden crime of the past that, that comes back into the surface um, in the present. And in fact, the story does cross borders, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, most, most of the plot is, is, um, happens in St. Petersburg and in Stockholm simultaneously. And, and what happens in Stockholm while Max is in St. Petersburg is that there's a strange intrusion into the digital infrastructure of Sweden, which is very reminiscent of what's going on now with, you know, all this talk about Facebook, uh, presidential elections, Brexit, Trump, et cetera, um, because there's, a, there's some kind of attack going on, on on the telecommunications network in Sweden carried out by Russian forces. And to Max, who is a, an expert of Russia and, and an ex-military man, this resembles the, prep, the preparatory stages of an invasion. Of an invasion, so it's it's a lot of lot of discussions about is this the new kind of warfare that we're now seeing? Is that your prediction? Well, um, I think I think definitely that 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 warfare has changed, and we've seen you know we've seen a lot of infrastructure intrusion in this part of the world. We've seen it in the world of politics. We've seen it in the world of sports and in culture as well. Um, and and uh, yes, I'm afraid it is a part of, of a reality, and it's part of, of today's life. Uh, and we have to be very careful about all the information that we're we're gathering. Hmm. How much of the book is the hero 
and how much of the book is the heroin? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think, I think, yeah, and this, this is a series of books. So, so Ask No Mercy is the first part of the series, and um, it's the first book is very much about Max, uh, but it's also it's also of course about the heroine Pashi, the Russian girl. But but um, I think we're following Max much more in this book. But we'll get to know Pashi more in the second book. Is this going to be a series? It is a series. Yeah, I've just finished book three. Actually, the book, uh, the third book, is, is going to be out in in Sweden in April. So, uh, so the first two books are out, and they've been they've been sold and translated into uh, fifteen countries, and it's just been released in America now, uh, the English version of the first book. Uh, but yes, definitely a series, and it's being adapted into a television series too. Television series we'll hear in the we'll see in the West. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I hope so. I mean, it's still in development and it's still you know taking form. But it's it's the the rights were bought, bought by Pinewood uh, Television in, in the United Kingdom, and they're 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 uh, developing it into a into a TV series together with a Swedish production company. So hopefully, it'll be available to to everyone. <laughs> that is going to be very exciting though for a writer, not only to have three books, to see them translated into a multiplicity of languages. But to have a TV series underway, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it really is a, a dream come true. Can you quit your day job? I did, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I, I used to work in television uh, for, for a long time, uh, but now I'm, I'm only doing this. It's, it's super, super interesting. I, I like it very much. Do you ever not worry though that you're either going to get in trouble with the Swedish government or maybe the Russian government? <laughs> well, you never know, you know, in these days. But uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I like to, I like to keep the books, you know, the kind of books that I like myself, are books that are very close to to reality and, and to real events. So, so, so when Ask No Mercy, we're very close to what actually happened in reality, both in the in the elections in '96 in Russia, but also what happened at the end of the Second World War in Stockholm. Uh, but I like to I like to twist something in in, in 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 what we know about the truth to say that what if what if it what if it was actually like this, and trying to make it as believable as possible. So you play around with, with some kind of conspiracy theory, and you twist the thing around a bit. And and uh, in order to to keep it believable, you need you need to do an, an enormous amount of research, and you need to you know always make it feel true. Uh, but I don't think. You know, maybe maybe I'll upset some politician somewhere, but I don't think um, I don't think I'm in danger. <laughs> how, how though do you famous do you, last words? Yeah. How do you, how do you um, research it from the Russian side though? Because they are so secretive, or at least try to be. They are. Yeah, they're very secretive, uh, and it's difficult. Well, I think, um, and and I've also said this in many other interviews that. One of the things that I really want to do is is, is to try and, and, and portray, uh, um, you know, a multi-dimensional picture of Russia, uh, and I, and I'd like to get people more interested in Russia because, quite often, especially in popular culture and in television series and films and so on, Russia is very one-dimensional uh, description. It's, you know, it's a bad guy. He's Russian. He's he's an evil man, but but Russia. Russia is a fascinating place. It has an incredible history, incredible culture, uh, and there's so many Russians as well. There's so many different people. So it's, it's a very, very rich and fascinating country. And I would, I would, I would recommend to everyone to to, to try and get to know Russia more. And, and it, it strikes me as so, so strange living in Sweden, which is a neighboring country to, to Russia, that we have so little exchange, so little communication with Russia. Um, so, uh, obviously I've been there a lot. I've traveled and I, and I'd like to go to Russia. Uh, I, I speak the language. Um, I, I try, I try not, not only to think about what's happening from my Western perspective. And I was born in Sweden. I was raised in the United Kingdom. I've lived in America. I feel very much like a, like a Western person, but there is, there is a different perspective to this. And that's the perspective from Moscow. Um, and I think in order for us to understand the world, I think it's good for us to sometimes try and look at it from the other angle. 
What do you, what do you think is our biggest misconception about Russia? Um, well, I think, I think, um, well, there's a couple of things I could say about that, but, but, but one thing that struck me now when I, when I read about what's, cause I try to follow what's happening in America quite a lot. And, and I read about the sentencing of this, this, this Russian woman who was sentenced, uh, for espionage just recently. Uh, I forget her name now, but you know what I'm talking about. Maria Butina. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and uh, it, it was almost like when I, when I read these articles about from from an American, and maybe, maybe this is my misunderstanding, and I'm, I'm I'm happy for you to correct me. But but it seemed like there was an element of there's, there seems to be an element of surprise. Uh, like when this happens in America, U.S. press or Americans are are, are surprised that this is, how can this be going on? Whereas for us in Sweden, it would be like okay, well. We have a Russian spy. So what? What else is new? You know, this happens all the time. Uh, we're we're used to this, uh, and the same goes for the Chinese. By the way, you know, we 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 have Chinese uh, spies on our industrial companies trying to emulate our our you know industrial success. So, you know, there's nothing strange about that. But it, but when you read about it in America, it seems like America always believes that. I don't know that they're spared from this, or that that they, they couldn't possibly have the audacity uh, to do this on American soil, um, and that surprises me when I when I when I follow what's going on in America. That there seems to be an element of surprise. Well, it does indeed sound like "Ask No Mercy." Does some things to sh- <laughs> yeah. does to shred our cocoon, <laughs> our cocoon of deniability. Yeah. <laughs> are, there, yeah, maybe. are there going to be future books? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, this, uh, the, the third book, like I mentioned, is, is going to be out in the spring. And uh, I think in, in uh, the way I've planned it for now, I think the series in total will have six or seven books. Exciting to say the least. And I'd like to say thank you to Martin Osterdahl. Um, his new thank you book, very much. His new book, Ask No Mercy. Thrilling, instructive, and not a whole lot that isn't very scary. Thank you, Martin. And it's been, Thank you so much. You're welcome. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sunny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Tideman Solomon, the associate producer, and my dear wife. Couldn't do it without either one of you. There's nothing left to say, but don't let the holidays make you nuts. Don't overspend. Don't overeat. Don't drink and drive. And with all those don'ts, try and have a good time anyway. See you soon.